This is Ye Old Dragons Library, the storytelling podcast. Here in Season 3, we're featuring the steampunk series, Guardians of the Time Stream. This is a chapter from the prequel story, Odessa Fremont. Ready for fun with fantastical fiction? Then let's begin. Chapter 13 Aunt Hazel was stunned speechless when she and Roger were escorted to the hotel suite on the first floor, where President Lincoln had retired, after the dedication ceremony went off without a single noticeable interruption. Roger had a black eye that he sported proudly, shoulders back and a cocky strut to his stride. He winked at S., who stood with Ashmore, now assigned as her personal bodyguard until she left for the position Sutter had found for her. He smirked up at his aunt, and the proprietary hand resting on the boy's shoulder visibly trembled as she made a curtsy to the president and guided Roger in bowing. S. counted the seconds, deciding this was a new record for the sharp-tongued but loving laundry woman to hold that tongue. Ma'am, I understand you are responsible for this fine young man who leaped into action and helped in subduing one of the men who came to harm me and disrupt the ceremony. You have done an admirable job. Roger, I hope you continue to listen to your aunt's guidance, and you will consider a position, when you are grown, where your sharp wit and your fists can be put to the best advantage. Sir, thank you, sir, Roger managed to say, and only hesitated two seconds when Mr. Lincoln held out his hand to shake theirs. Aunt Hazel's gaze met S's as the two of them turned to leave, and she flushed red and her mouth dropped open. She started to say something, then just sighed loudly and shook her head and crooked her finger for S to follow. No one disobeyed that finger, unless he had a desire for a tongue lashing that made the boilers and the ringing equipment in the laundry vibrate. Ashmore must have understood that, because he didn't try to stop S but followed her when she turned to hurry out of the room. "'Just what trouble have you been getting yourself into?' Hazel gasped when Ashmore closed the door behind him and S, and the four of them stood in the hall, a few steps down from the doorway. Despite her exasperation and what S hoped was relief glittering in her eyes, she kept her voice down. Joshua here was a big help in identifying several dangerous individuals plotting against the President's life,' Ashmore said. Your lad was a big help as well. He winked at Roger, who grinned widely enough S thought she could see all his teeth. You're not coming back to the laundry, are you? Hazel waved her hands to brush away S's response and reached out to hug her. I have the awful feeling you're tied up in whatever trouble dragged away Mr. Philippont. Stealing from guests' rooms might... She froze, her arms tight around S. Breathed twice then slowly stepped back, but held hold of the girl's shoulders. Her gaze bored into S's face, and in that moment she knew the loving, rough-edged woman had guessed her secret. You little minx, she whispered, shook her once, and finally let go. Unfortunately, Ashmore said, as that rapid exchange took place, Joshua here is in danger because he identified five conspirators, but only two were captured. We're moving him to a safe place. He pulled out his pocket watch. In half an hour. If there are any other goodbyes you need to make, lad, now's the time. No, Aunt Hazel and Roger are really my only good friends. S exchanged grins with the woman, 
She wondered if Roger would ever know the truth about her, or if his aunt would keep it to herself as a good joke. The joke was on her, she decided a short time later, when Ashmore escorted her to the little pantry that served the president's suite, and she saw the costumes she was to wear to get her to the train station. Full widow's gear, including a clever hump to strap to her back. Between her veil, black lace fingerless gloves, cane, and an ear trumpet to hang around her neck on a string of jet beads, S. thought she would smother from the multiple layers or be crushed under the weight of the disguise. Maybe Sutter was getting revenge on her for tricking him? Then again, she thought the joke might be on his fellow agents. He and the president knew she was a girl, but the others didn't. Would he ever tell any of them, or even just Tuttle, who was to escort her to safety, that his charge had been a girl disguised as a boy disguised as an old woman? Ashmore looked apologetic when he returned to the pantry once she had donned her disguise. At least she thought he did, until she caught one corner of his mouth twitching in merriment. She wouldn't be able to say goodbye to the rest of the Secret Service detail, and he promised to pass along her thanks and farewells. Then he shook her hand, gave her a large envelope with Sutter's instructions, and turned her and an enormous black carpet bag over to Tuttle. In moments he was gone, and her most recent adventure seemed to officially end with the click of the door closing behind him. I hear you're a dab hand at traveling by dumbwaiter, Tuttle said, a grin lighting his dusky, sharp-boned face. You should have told me about that before I got weighed down with this rig. S. couldn't help grinning back at him. Just up one floor, and then I'm to escort you down the stairs and raise an unholy fuss about transportation to get you to the train station. You're a deaf, rich old lady, with wits just slightly less feeble than your body, and I am your long-suffering servant, taking you home for a long visit with your favorite granddaughter. As he spoke, to S's delight, his voice changed, taking on a Creole drawl. He bowed and offered her a hand to climb up into the dumbwaiter, warning her to stay in it until he let her out, then slid the hatch shut. Dozens of questions circulated through her mind, and she had sufficient time to discard most of them as impolite while she waited to be free from the cramped box. Perhaps on the journey to New Orleans, they would come to know each other well enough she could ask some of her questions without being rude. Then again, she might decide that if they became friends, she wouldn't need to know. Unfortunately, Tuttle informed her on the leisurely stroll. He strolled, and she rode in a borrowed wheelchair with thick tires to the train station that she would not end up in New Orleans. That was simply what the tickets for Madame Beaujolais said. At the last train stop before entering Louisiana, at the discreet and secretive hour of two in the morning, she and Tuttle would part company. She would return to her boy disguise, currently hiding in her enormous carpet bag, and get on the next train going north, while Tuttle would hike to the Secret Service office in the next town. Once they were settled in their private compartment on the train, comfortably sprawled in the cushioned seats facing each other, Tuttle gave her the rest of the details of Sutter's arrangements. S. was to join up with a traveling circus troupe in Indianapolis. The owner and ringmaster was one Alexander Stockwell, although that wasn't the name he had been born with, nor war while he served with distinction during the war between the states. 
he had been involved in a complicated spying operation, whereby he and several of his men pretended to turn traitor to the Union and became the secret weapon for one of Jefferson Davis's advisors. They learned all they could of the rebels' communication routes, the meeting places where airships sent by Queen Victoria's government brought in supplies, passed the air and sea blockades, and uncovered the names of several traitors in key positions on the Union side. Stockwell was the only one who survived the mission, and he lost his left leg from the knee down. The explosion that destroyed a rebel outpost and cost him his left leg also disfigured him, so he was nearly unrecognizable. With a huge reward posted by the resurrectionist leaders for information leading to his capture, torture, and execution, Stockwell had taken on a new name to go with his face, cut all ties with his past, and took on a new occupation. A traveling circus afforded great opportunity to go everywhere, to be entirely visible and yet not be noticed by the very people on whom he spied. Your job, Tuttle explained, as the clacking of the train wheels threatened to lull S into a doze, is to hide, learn some useful skills. He grinned. Sutter's exact words were, let the lad figure out what's useful and what's just plain fun. Most important, you're to keep an eye on Stockwell. Only a fool believes that his disguise is perfect. Stockwell's no fool, but a few years of safety make a man relax and get careless. Sutter thinks you have eyes fresh enough to see what others might miss. That's a tall order, S. mused. She tugged on the black lace gloves, idly wishing they would stop itching. Something in Tuttle's voice when he talked about the war hero had caught her attention. You like him, don't you? Stockwell, I mean. My big brother was part of his team. Rupert thought the world of him. They were in an ambush long about five months before they got the assignment to go deep into enemy territory. Rupert got shot, shattered both his legs falling from the lookout spot where he was the sharpshooter, keeping the others safe. Most men in that situation would have figured he was dead already, left him for the crows. Stockwell led the charge to go back for him, carried Rupert out, then he raised an unholy ruckus and wouldn't let the surgeons cut off his legs. Dragged in a doctor with some newfangled ideas about infections and germs and setting bones. Tuttle sighed and leaned his head back, and closed his eyes for the first time since boarding the train two hours before. Rupert swore he'd go through hell and back for his commander. All the men did. He opened his eyes, and the intensity in their dark depths made S. catch a breath. Here's something you need to understand, boy. Only you didn't hear it from me. Got it? S. nodded and leaned forward, anticipating how Tuttle lowered his voice and leaned forward in his turn. Sutter thinks the world of Stockwell, and he's got a world of guilt and regret riding his shoulders. He was shot up bad in a snatch-and-run operation just four days before the team got their orders to go deep. He was sick with a killing fever and blood poisoning that would have taken another man. Stockwell's doctor friend with the miracle medicine and crazy newfangled ideas was in charge of him. Otherwise, Sutter wouldn't be here today. Tuttle's mouth softened with fondness that mildly surprised S. So you can understand that he didn't get sent on the mission, and he sure as shooting couldn't join them when he was back on his feet. My grandfather would say that he has too much pride, S. offered. How's that? Sutter thinks... Maybe he hasn't put it into words, but it's there in the back of his mind, 
that if he had been there with them, some of them might still be alive. That's pride, don't you think? Tuttle nodded, soft laughter flowing out of him, wiping away some of the grief that she could see lingered even this many years after his brother's death and the mission that only Stockwell survived. She had some new understanding of Sutter, too. It pleased her that the agent trusted her enough to send her to a man he admired and worried about. Stockwell wouldn't be her keeper. She would help keep him safe. S. laughed as she realized something. What's so funny, lad? Sutter warned me you're a clever one. What sort of mischief are you dreaming up already? I was just thinking that this is perfect. What boy doesn't dream of running away to join the circus? She laughed with him, though the sound turned wistful when Tuttle sprawled out more on the seat opposite her. S. could not relax that fully because the false hump strapped to her back made lying down awkward. Being caught by the remaining resurrectionist would be even more awkward, painfully so. S. was willing to pay the price for her safety and her life. We've come to a break in the story. I'd like to take a moment to tell you about a book that you might be interested in reading. Do you hear howls when you see a full moon? What do you really know about the wolfman? He could be a victim rather than a monster. He could be lonely, in pain, trying to find a way home. He could be the boy next door. He could be you. Explore new variations on the wolfman in Moonlight and Claws. Classic Monsters Anthology Number 1 from Ye Old Dragon Books. Moonlight and Claws is in paper and ebook. You'll never look at the Wolfman the same way again. And now, back to the story. Three days later, after four train changes and a costume change, S. stepped onto the platform of the Indianapolis station, totally alone. Burdened with a carpet bag that was much lighter after discarding her widow's clothes two stations ago, exhausted and hungry, she felt an odd kind of exhilaration. Some of that could be physical lightheadedness, but the last few days of solitary travel had given her time to think and work out a plan of action in her journal. She had a token Sutter had given her, a wooden disc with Greek letters that she could use at any secret service office in the country to claim help or simply to get communication to Sutter. He had made her promise she would keep him updated on her search for Ulysses and their grandparents, and promised he would help if he was able. He had winked when he said it, and added, Within reason. S. wore the token around her neck, on the same chain that held the key to her storage locker. Already, she could see she had been wise to set up that protection, because any step along her journey so far could have resulted in being robbed or simply having to abandon something for the sake of escape. Ernest MacDonald? The deep voice came from the shadows of the station house. A moment later, a thump creak wheeze followed as S. turned to identify the voice. A tall man with broad shoulders, piercing ebony eyes, and an imposing mane of silver-white hair stepped out into the noonday sunshine. He took long strides with a visibly rocking gait. S. realized the thump creak wheeze came from his left leg when he took a step. He wore tall, heavy, glossy black boots with thick cuffs reaching to his knees. His trousers were nearly as glossy, and S. wondered if they were silk. 
He had a crimson leather belt with an enormous buckle that could pass as a saucer for a grand set of dinnerware. Between the burn scars modeling the left side of his face, looking like a wax mask that had partially melted, and what was clearly a mechanical leg, this had to be Alexander Stockwell. S. decided not to be flattered that the owner of the circus had come to meet her himself. He had probably done it out of necessity. Anyone Sutter sent to him for safekeeping probably received such treatment. Yes, sir, she said, and held out her hand to shake. She had chosen to be earnest because that was her grandfather's name, and close enough to S., she knew she could respond to the name with minimal trouble. So, Stockwell drawled, looking her over, head to foot, taking in her travel-worn, patched trousers and use-softened boots, sweaty shirt, and the carpet-bag that had been turned inside out, changing it from widow-black to battered, cast-off patchwork. So, another adventure-minded boy runs away to join the circus. Yes, sir. She couldn't repress a grin, tipping her head back to look up at him in her turn. I hear you're a troublemaker. He gave her hand an extra squeeze and tug before releasing it. S. decided she had passed the first inspection or test. There would likely be more. Oh, no, sir. Trouble finds me, she shrugged. I just don't bother to run away from the fight. Stockwell tipped his head back and let out a burst of laughter that was half-roar. He turned on his good leg and gestured for her to follow. Don't dawdle, lad. Not much time to get you settled before we have to prepare for the afternoon's show. I hear you have some mechanical skills. We'll apprentice you to the man who keeps our steam engine and all our tricks and traps and gimcracks running. His leg wheezed and groaned louder as he took the steps leading down to the yard in front of the station, two at a time. S. had to hurry to keep up. How are you with horses? the big man threw over his shoulder, while gesturing at a small gig hitched to a huge horse, more suited to knights in armor than pulling a carriage. Driving them? Feeding, grooming, riding. You're small enough. Look like you have some grace. Care to learn tumbling? Some bareback dancing, jumping, that sort of thing? Maybe get up on the trapeze? He stopped two steps from the gig and turned sharply to face her, eyes narrowed and mouth a flat line. I'll learn anything you want to teach me, she blurted, feeling breathless from more than just running. That light-headed feeling had returned, and she suspected it was more than just physical. Stockwell snorted and nodded, his face brightening in a grin that did odd things to the creases in the burned side of his face. You'll do, lad. You'll do. The Countess was the only name S. ever heard used for the woman who stood as mother for most of the circus workers. She was tall enough to look Stockwell in the eye, with an olive complexion and jet-black hair with intriguing white streaks in it, and a way of braiding her hair to take advantage of those streaks, to look mysterious. The Countess assisted in training the acrobats, and performed as a magician in the sideshow. What S. found fascinating was how the Countess could slide from one foreign accent to another, first French, then German, then British, then Russian, and each one sounded perfectly natural to her. Then again, what did S. know about accents and what was natural? She was only 15, and despite her grandparents' many scholarly visitors, she hadn't seen much of the world. Ernest, is it? the Countess said. Stockwell had instructed her to get S. set up with a bunk, more presentable clothes, and then introduce her to Gus before the afternoon crowds started arriving. Then he walked away. 
Yes, ma'am. S had the sensation the tall, elegant woman could see right through her. This way. I think you and Jasper will become friends quite quickly. She beckoned with a tip of her head and set off through the maze of tents and wagons that made up the circus backstage. I must warn you, the quarters are cramped. You don't need them except for sleeping, but... A soft, lazy sort of chuckle escaped her. Perhaps I should apprentice you as a magician as well as with the horses. You like illusions, do you? I suppose I do. I haven't seen magicians perform much. Performing, not watching. Another chuckle. Yes, you and Jasper shall be good instant friends. If you do not become the worst of enemies, she added after a brief pause. The countess led her to an enclosed wagon that had most definitely seen better days. It might have once been part of the parade that traditionally took place from the train to the fairgrounds, where the circus would set up, but only streaks of the gilding and bright paint remained on the weathered wood. Some boards had been replaced, and others had black that as thought might be burn marks. The wheels looked rusty, and the wood inside the metal rims was battered, the bright paint worn off years ago, and splintering. They were massive, maybe eight feet in diameter, and made up most of the height of the little wagon. S thought she would have to bend over when she climbed up the four folded-down steps into the wagon. The countess rapped four times on the door, then pulled it open. S had a moment of discomfort. No locks on the door of what would be her home, her bedroom, for the foreseeable future? She supposed she had made mistaken assumptions, that a man who still faced threats from wartime enemies would maintain some simple security precautions in his circus, such as locks on doors. Then the countess gestured for S to climb up the steps, and the girl looked in and had another moment of disorientation. The wagon seemed to be a storage locker for the entire circus. Ropes, pulleys, stakes, toolboxes, bolts of canvas. The wagon was jammed full. Everything was neatly stowed, but crammed in as tightly as possible. Two-thirds up the sides of the wagon, three bunks hung over the supplies, bolted to the walls. Each bunk had a thick mattress, blankets, and a pillow piled neatly on one end, with a small trunk attached on the other end. S. saw the lock on each trunk and understood. Cramped quarters. But as I said, you'll only be here to sleep, the countess said. Jasper has that bunk, she said, gesturing at the far wall. Nobody else is in here with him, so you have your pick. S. chose the opposite wall, leaving the third bunk on the short wall between the two for the next person to join them. The countess showed her where the key for her trunk was tucked between pillow and blankets. S. shoved her carpet bag into the trunk and was just stepping down from the wagon when a boy a little taller than her came running up. Eyes wide, face flushed, he looked caught somewhere between fury and panic. The countess crossed her arms and waited for the boy to skid to a stop before her. Then she raised a single pointing finger, silencing the boy when he opened his mouth in what looked like a protest. Jasper, this is Ernest. He will be working with Gus and learning acrobatics. Shouldn't you be painting your face right now? But, Jasper gulped and gestured at the wagon behind S and the countess. Listen to me, my dear, and listen carefully. Ernest is in the same position as you. It is high time you had an ally and a partner in mischief. Do you understand me? She gestured back and forth between the two of them as she spoke. Slowly, the color receded to normal in Jasper's face, and his mouth relaxed into an astonished smile. 
He looked back and forth between S and the Countess several times. Then he tipped his head slightly to the left and fluttered his lashes. S gasped, and it was as if the light had suddenly changed, or perhaps a screen from a theatrical performance had been lifted, revealing what was only partially visible a moment ago. Jasper was a girl. S laughed and held out a hand. A moment later, Jasper clasped her hand and they shook. The Countess chuckled, then gave an imperious wave of her hand, and Jasper ran back the way she had come. When the woman beckoned, S followed along at a trot. "'Yes, I think you will do very well with illusions. What trouble are you fleeing, my dear, to be so skilled at disguise at your age?' "'My grandparents are missing, and the boarding school where they left me tried to turn me into a porcelain doll with sawdust for brains.' Why, anyone wastes time sending their daughters to school if they want only decorative pieces, I will never understand. She gestured at a massive, much-patched tent where great gouts of steam escaped through the seams and the sound of wheezing and grinding erupted louder as they drew closer. Ahead is the domain of Augustus Wheeler, one of the mechanical geniuses of our time. Like many geniuses, he has no use for money and is quite mad. A safe, amusing kind of madness, fortunately. Her eyes half-closed, and her shoulders shook a few times in silent laughter. We're already at the end of today's chapter. I hope you enjoyed yourself, and you're eagerly looking forward to the next episode of Ye Old Dragon's Library.